Hi, this is Steve. Welcome to The Playful Musician. You're listening to Precious Energy, the title track off Barney McCall's new album. Barney is a Melbourne-based jazz pianist and composer who moved to New York City when he was pretty young and joined saxophonist Gary Bartz's band. He also hooked up with Josh Roseman, The Groove Collective, Kurt Rosenwinkel, just to name a few. We sat down last December and had a great conversation, he and his home in Melbourne, my home in Oregon. And we talked a lot about this album that's dropping today, February 18th. Please check out his website, barneymccall.com. You'll see links to purchase his music and listen to all the great tracks. And we're going to feature several tracks in this re- in the interview. So make sure you listen all the way through so you can hear some other great clips from this recording. You know, he's played with a whole host of people, Kenny Garrett, Massio Parker, Eddie Henderson, Billy Harper, and Sia. And we talk a lot about his time on the road with Sia being her music director and what that was like playing those amazing shows and being around such a super creative person like Sia. Fair warning, there is a profanity, there is swearing <laughs> in this episode. So if you're sensitive to that, just be aware that there's a few F-bombs here and there. Uh, we had a great time chatting, and I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Barney McCall. Welcome to the Playful Musician. I'm your host, Steve Davidson. Each week, I sit down with musicians from all different paths, from composers to conductors, percussionists to piccolo players, to tease out their strategies, practice habits, tips, tools, tricks, routines, and how they keep all of it playful. The Playful Musician is an intimate look into the lives of each musician, how they got to where they are, what motivates and inspires them, and what playing music means to them. If you'd like to learn more about the guests or just more about being playful, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can find show notes, links to all references mentioned in the show, and all kinds of resources related to music. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to The Playful Musician on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave a review as well? Thanks again, and without further ado... Here is this week's episode. Barney, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Looking at your Wikipedia page is pretty uh, amazing. <laughs> you're very... <laughs> You you're very prolific and very uh, what's the word like you have a lot of varied interests. Yeah, well, sure. I definitely have gone pretty diverse over the years, um, and it's all music, you know. Um, yeah. To me, it's all music, and I just look for what makes me feel good, and what you know, what I can, um, uh, what I can get with, and then. But it just turns out that I've played all sorts of pop and all sorts of jazz and imp- far out improvised stuff and sort of new music and um, which Soundtracks. I like. Yeah, lots yeah. of stuff because it all mostly political um, documentaries I've done 
Um, sure. But it all filters into itself. And so I just try to stay, you know, I just don't really want to be just a jazzer, you know, or I don't even like yeah. the word jazz. <laughs> but I've definitely played some bop, you know, so. Right. Yeah. And where where are you exactly? I'm in Melbourne, Australia now. Um, I lived in New York for 20 years and I moved back here in um, around 2015, I think it was. I did a mm -hmm. composer residency in in um, Sydney, which meant um, I, with my family and my two kids, we got to live in this most beautiful two-story house in the center of Sydney for free, mm. re free rent for a year um, and a beautiful Stuart and Sons grand piano to just write music for a year. It's incredible what the Australian um, sort of government uh, and this, this uh, Peggy Glanville Hicks group that even offers something like that. It's incredible. So I didn't actually even have to write anything. The, the guy who runs the, the, <laughs> the guy who runs the, um, the Peggy Glanville Hicks um, composer residency said to me, you know what, if you just want to stare at your navel for one year, you can, you don't have to acquit it. We just want, you know, well, Peggy Glanville Hicks, who was a, an incredible Australian composer, she left her house and estate for the purposes of, a, um, of, of composers to come and get a break. And so, uh, you know, New York's a pretty intense place, as you probably know. And yeah. so we came back and sort of dipped our toes in the water of a possible life in Australia. And then we were like, okay, we'll just stay here. So I definitely had an amazing time in New York and I miss it so much. But um, now I'm here. What were what was the uh, result of that year of composing? Well, I took it very seriously because I was the first improvising musician to be allowed in there. Usually, before that, it was um, classical composers, contemporary classical composers. So, mm -hmm. um, I made an album. I made an album called "Hearing the Blood." Then, in there, I wrote a piece for the Monash Art Ensemble, as commissioned by Monash University. Uh, it's called Zephyrix, and so that's a, mm -hmm. um, a six-part suite for a large ensemble. And um, I did a whole series of solo pianos uh, recordings there on the piano that was in the house. Um, mm. And, yeah, and it was just, um, it was very successful, actually, because I had so much time to write, I didn't have to worry about paying bills, didn't have to do any club dates, didn't have to do anything. Um, and I really... Um, I, yeah, I, I did really well with it for, as far as I, I feel. And um, I wrote a piece of music that I'd never have the time to write. I, it was called Zephyrix, the one I mentioned. And um, mm -hmm. I wrote a lot of it in pencil at the piano. And then mm. I had this crazy long thing with all these ideas. And then I went up into the upstairs room and sort of scored it out. And, and I took mm. about three... I had three months to write a piece of music, so it took me three months... Um, and yeah, just to have that, that time and not have to worry, um, was incredible. Sure. Yeah. What a, yeah. What a luxury. That's it's awesome. Amazing. So I wanted to actually start the interview in a, and probably a odd place to start, but I wanted to talk about ritualistic trance and the state music can create, because this was something I read in your writing that really piqued my interest mm. and this idea that music or groove can have an effect on people 
at kind of a somatic or visceral level. And I'd just like you to talk more about that and your experience with that. Now you've really opened up a can of worms. But um, <laughs> let me tell you a couple of things about it. One is that I went to Cuba in, I suppose, I don't know when this was, a while ago. Um, maybe in the late 2003, 90- I think. Yeah, and I, but I also went there like late 98, I think. Went there a number of okay. times. The first time I went there, I went there with my girlfriend of the t- at the time, and she had a contact with this guy who invited us to a ceremony for Yemaya. Yemaya mm-hmm. is um, one of the Santorian um, Orishas, one of the deities. Um, and I just was wanting to learn. I was playing in some Latin bands and also listening to jazz players often trying to play some Afro-Cuban piano styles. I wanted to learn the real deal. So I, went, I did actually have some lessons with Chucho Valdez and it was amazing. I was hanging mm. out. But anyway, suddenly... We found ourselves at this ceremony for Yamaya, and it was really heavy. Um, there was a, a there was a conga player. He had two congas. There was another guy playing a hoe, like a metal hoe with a piece of another piece of metal. Um, and there was wow. a shekere player, and they were playing. And there was a whole pile of singers and some women and dancing and stuff. And they were playing these folkloric melodies and songs. Um, it was like standing next to Elvin Jones, just the interlocking rhythmic power of it. Um, mm. And it changed me. It really did. It was so powerful. And um, and then I'm standing there with my mouth on the fl- jaw on the floor. And they start this, this folkloric dance, which is very sensual, you know. And there's these mm. three women doing this dance. And they see me. And, and it's a whole pile of people. And they come to me <laughs> and drag me out to be the first you know, non-Cuban to dance with them. And the the woman goes, one of the women goes to the altar and gets some honey and puts it on her finger and wipes it on my lips and then drags me in. I'm like, oh my God, I'm really going, I'm really going in deep now. <laughs> so I was happy to dance at that point. I was, but <clears throat> I did learn that was what really shifted my, my, my consciousness in a way, because I was just so blown away and enamored by this, this music, which I didn't understand, which moved me on a really deep level. So mm. after that, I started kind of studying and reading and researching um, Bata rhythms. And I went to Cuba a number of times after that. So what I do is go there and I get recordings and talk to people about it and then go back to New York and, and, and listen. And also I was working with a band called the Groove Collective and the, mm. There were two percussionists in that band, and we were traveling a lot, months on end in a bus. And um, mm-hmm. they were playing Santorian rhythms in the back room of the bus, the clave lounge, as we called it. And um, <laughs> so I was getting immersed in this thing, and then I started thinking, oh, I, I, I there was another Australian uh, drummer who was living in Africa, and he put out a recording, his name's Nick, Nick McBride, and he put out this recording where he'd taken some of these rhythms and attached melodies and harmony to those interlocking rhythms. And I was just thinking, mm. wow, I want to try that, I want to do that. So, I know this is a long-winded way to get, I'm going to get there. No, I, no, this is great. So, Keep going. Thank you. So, I, what I did is I started slowing down the, the Bata recordings I had and just listening to them. I slowed them down. 
you know, half speed and would listen to them in around the house, you know, just doing the dishes or whatever. And then when something would really strike me, something really unorthodox, I would just make a note of it. And then I'd go into the studio and, and loop that little section. And then I would mm -hmm. um, a attach chords and melodies and, and, and just use it as a springboard for composition. And what happened is, um, long story short, I wrote a, a whole album of, of songs for Yemaya, um, sort of honoring the beauty of, of, of that music um, with great humility and, and, and great um, gratitude, not trying to kind of steal anything, but just kind of trying to find a way to be inspired and a kind of springboard. And I, I took these pieces that I'd written back to Cuba and recorded them with some really amazing percussionists and a, and a bass player. Um, and I had this vision where I wanted to do, um, I wanted to um, make some music that would be very different to anything I'd ever made using these mm. rhythms as a springboard. And we recorded this album called Mother of Dreams and Secrets. And when I played some of the things to the percussionists, they were like, oh, okay, I think I know, I think I know where that came from. Or they'd be like, what, that's it? And I'd say, I've got, I've got other plans. I'm going to put all these layers on in New York. <laughs> They're like, okay. Right. So I took it back to New York and, and I put, Billy Harper came to my house, the great tenor player. He sounded like a yeah. lion roaring in my Brooklyn lounge room of my apartment. But I've known I Billy bet. for a long time. Um, and then mm. Kurt Rosenwinkel came over and played and I put all sorts of stuff and I made this album. And you know, it long the long story short, I was I was looking at ritualistic music and looking at the power of this meditative stuff and this ecstatic music. And I remember also I got to meet Keith Jarrett, which is a whole other story. But he came to my gig right. with um, Badal Roy and and Rufus Cappadocia on on, uh, on cello. Mm. And and Keith said to me that um, when Miles first heard him, he came up to him afterwards and said, "You're playing the wrong instrument." And Keith was like, that's fantastic. At least someone understands. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm an ecstatic musician who's mm. playing a, a piano, which is sort of, he, as he said, like all strung up and needs a therapist. Whereas when I play, <laughs> he plays he plays a lot of instruments, Keith, obviously. And he, when he says, when I play mm. tabla or when I play soprano saxophone, um, I can get between the notes and I can, you know, I can play music. Um, the ecstatic music requires the, the, the microtones and, and this other feeling, but it's hard to get it with the piano. But I think Keith did a pretty good job sometimes. Um, mm, yeah. So, yeah, I've just been really interested in, like, I also went to some ceremonies and I, I saw some amazing things that I won't even go into because it's, I suppose I shouldn't. But um, I will say that, at, that um, Steve, if there's a music... That is for invoking spirits. Okay, mm -hmm. I want to understand it. <laughs> I want to. Yeah. I want to listen to it, and I want to delve into it. And I will never understand it. And and I suppose what I took right. away is, you know, this is about, you know, it's 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 a deep African culture that that is way beyond. I'm I am certainly not not ready <laughs> for it, but I still was very inspired by it and in reading a lot about you know that that stuff this is one area of sacred music and ritualistic music um there are initiates who are what's called mounted by the um 
by the deity that they're honoring via the music. Mm -hmm. So the music opens a portal and then the deities mm -hmm. come down and mount the initiate. And then the initiate goes around the tribe and says, you, Steve, stop smoking so many cigarettes. You know, you stop having affairs. You're getting drunk too much. You need to, you know, the deity enters the initiate and, and then that a deity can speak to the tribe through the initiate. So anyway, wow. these kind of things That's to me awesome. are fascinating, and I have seen some crazy stuff down there. And um, so yeah, really, I just sort of came back with my tail between my legs and was like, "Wow, I'm really inspired." <laughs> and I, I went to um, Matanzas and hung out with Manini, who is a uh, um, who's the head of Afro Cuba de Matanzas and has a lineage going back, you know, many hundreds of years um, mm. in the Abaqua. Um, religion, um, but I said to him, <laughs> uh, Manini, I'd like to see magic, you know, and I come from Australia and everything, and he was like, okay, check this out. Anyway, <laughs> but I asked Manini, and I said, I'm doing a recording, and I, I would like to use just some snippets of these rhythms, these interlocking things that I've sort of um, put into my own sort of aesthetic, using them as a sort of rhythmic springboard. Is that okay? May I do it? He said, if it's outside of a ceremony, you can do whatever you like. Um, and so hmm. I went to Havana and recorded that album um, after speaking to Manini. So I suppose I'll put it like that. Yeah. How did that then influence your sense of time or groove or... Um, wow. So much rhythm <laughs> wow. going forward. I mean, that had to have a profound effect on it. Look, this is this is a fantastic. I'm so happy to answer these questions because it's right on the money for me. And it, no, it's not on the money. That's a term that was programmed into me by capitalism. <laughs> I apologize. Edit. Um, no, that's all right. <laughs> what I want to say is, it changed me. Like through the Groove Collective, they used to do these things. They had this one song called "Fly." You know, and I I was like this sort of supposed, oh, great jazzy piano player from Australia. When I got to New York, I got my ass kicked to understand <laughs> there's so much to know, you know. And, and mm. with, um, with the Groove Collective, we used to do this song, um, and um, it, was, it was in four, and then it broke into a three, four, a six, eight rhythm. Um, I was mm -hmm. like, oh, that's interesting. But then when I got to um, Cuba... I, you know, one of the main things that was fascinating to me is the the uh, ambiguity between three and four, you know, 12, eight, mm -hmm. two, four, six, and how it moves around in this beautiful middle place between those two things. So after this experience in Cuba, all of my compositional approach changed looking at that, you know, the, the Mother of Dreams and Secrets album I'm... I made was really just looking at the magic of that, um, that, mm. that, that middle place. I mean, oh, it's just so much to tell. Like, um, the, I, I spoke to a guy called Olav Allen at the, um, the, the ethnomusicological musicological Institute there in, in Havana. Mm -hmm. He said to me, you know, the difference between the beauty of, Afro-Cuban music is this. He said, in Western classical music, 
Um, you have an intro, like you're born, then you have this grandiose life, and then you have this huge <laughs> cadenza, and it's all, you know, steeples and God and all that, and that's the mm. symbolism of the, of the music. Right. In African music, there's no one, no one counts anything in, and you're just in the present moment, vamping, um, and it's deep, man. And, and when I talk about bata music, I mean, it's, it is the source of so much groove and ritual music in our lives. I believe all music comes from Africa. That's kind of well-known mm. fact. Not many people want to talk about it, but that's, the, that's what's <laughs> up. Right. And so, um, you know, if you think about, so he said, if you think about Afro-Cuba music, you have compositional form, and then you have these open sections. And that's the Montuno, Tumbao. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when right. I play with Gary Bartz as well, he has these a lot of songs where you have these open sections, and then the music will cue you out of it, which I really love. And then, so there's no, what Gary does is he just plays a whole set, and it's like this journey that you go on with your ears. No one's talking about, and on the bass, you know. He doesn't do that right. to the end, <laughs> right? And I, that's kind of coming from Miles Davis, he said. Um, mm. This kind of through thing and but just the idea that you can have both thing both compositional form and then free open places to really stretch out um yeah and then if you think about james brown's music i mean you know because I, I also played with fred wesley and the jb's for for you know 15 years um mm. and just um, I remember when I came off the first tour with Fred and went back to play with Gary Bartz, Gary said, you tell Fred thanks a lot, man. <laughs> and I think what he's saying is that I was locking in with my comping much more and supporting and listening and being part of this one entity of music instead of, you know, trying to play too much. Um, mm. Because Fred would say yeah. to me, all right, you know, sometimes, like, the, the, the keyboard part in doing it to death, it's just, um, bump, uh, uh, uh. He said, just do that. He said, just listen and bubble off everything else and save all the rest for your solo album. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, um, you know, you think about James Brown music, it's African music, obviously, and the, the, the parts yeah. that he's singing are like batar parts or something, you know? And I remember he, Fred said that when they went to hear, um, uh, you know, Fela Kuti in Nigeria, mm -hmm. when Fred's band went there, he, they were so blown away with what they heard. And it's it's known that, um, you know, Fela Kuti is also singing, he, he is a, a Baba Lao and in the Yoruba tradition and, and he's singing these parts to his musicians. Um, mm -hmm. And James Brown said to Fred, I want you to write some Fela shit, you know. Now, what's fascinating <laughs> is that Fela learnt the James Brown stuff in London when he was living there. And it all just comes full circle. It's all the African diaspora. And it's just, to me, the most beautiful music that exists, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Is there an album that you would recommend, like if somebody want, wants to start diving into this, you know, Afro-Cuban or this type of music, is there an album you would point people to? Oh, look, um, any of the Smithsonian stuff, um, I would, 
<laughs> I would recommend um, Lazaro Ross, anything mm-hmm. of his, and then um, you know any of the Afro Cuba de Matanzas music, um, mm-hmm. the Smithsonian collections, and there's actually a video that I'll send you a link to. <laughs> Um, and you could maybe put it in the notes, um, which, yeah, put it in the show which notes. is a fascinating thing, which is, you know, the bata rhythms are, are played by three drummers, and there's three drummers playing through all the different rhythms. And what's really brilliant about this video is that it, you can hear the mother drum, the main large drum, um, the drummer playing the rhythms and cueing into the next rhythm. So they're playing one rhythm, and it's like an encyclopedic like knowledge of, of of all these rhythms like the like almost like the level of indian well maybe to a greater level than the, the indian traditions and mm. um they they play a rhythm and then the, the mother drum cues the next thing and you have to be listening and know what that cue is it's almost really is like talking and then they move and sure. w- when they move this video that i'm going to send you the link to it shows you which one they're playing here's another cut from precious energy This is Sweet Water featuring Rita Satch. Would you, would you then take these rhythms and like practice them at all, or was it more like you would just? Well, I could give you a little example. I don't know if you can hear the piano. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, for yeah. example, um, so what I would hear in the jar, I wrote a piece called um, "Obatala," and Gary Bartz plays on that song, and mm. you know, like I could hear something like a bass note, which was like. It was like one, two, two, four. So I was like, okay, I'm going to put a bass line to this loop. Now, I'm just slowing the rhythms down and putting anywhere in the middle of just finding some stuff that I like. It may, it's mm-hmm. definitely not to do with the, 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 the religion or where they're hearing it, but I, I'm okay sure. with that. So, like, I'll have a... Right.
the other drums going. You can play a little bit of that piece called Obatala if you wanted to, and you, you could hear that. Um, so yeah. what that did is um, it, it, it created this incredible funk, you know, that that, that was this. <laughs> then there was a basis for then I, what I'd do is I'd, I'd play along with the bata rhythms and I'd take little snippets of the, the beat that I was hearing or like any any unorthodox things that were funky to me. Mm-hmm. And then I'd write right on top of the drums in my Pro Tools with the drums half sped to the lowest speed or whatever. And then when I had that foundation, I'd loop that. And then I've got this thing going on. It's like a, a volcano waiting to erupt to me. Like, it's, <laughs> right. I love it. You know, like, it's, it's it, you know, mainly because I'm hearing these drums. And then I write a melody on top of that. And then I would I took it into the studio. This is on an album called Release the Day, which happened before the Mother of Dreams and Secrets. I was just sort of delving into this stuff. And mm-hmm. um yeah, so we did that. And if you listen to Gary play on that, woo! And it's Joey Barron's playing <laughs> drums. Um oh, and nice. may I also say the great percussionist Eddie Bobay, who just died only like a couple of days ago. Um, oh my gosh! And he yeah. he helped me so much, man. And um, it's very sad that he gone and he's gone. And um, so when we when we went into the studio to make this album, release the day. I had Joey Barron, I had Gary Bartz, Peter Applebaum, Clark Gayton on on trombone, um, Tony Share on bass, and I've got all these amazing musicians, and no one's heard anything. I just wanted to make some stuff like <laughs> that we could just read down in the studio. And Eddie comes, mm. and he says, all right, what you got? Because I've been talking to him also, you know, sort of consulting with him about this stuff. And he said to me, he said to the whole band, he said, okay, here's what's up. The first piece we're going to play is the piece Elegua, which is the piece that I call 33. And he said, mm-hmm. this is a rhythm of Elegua on some level, like not unrecognizable, but he said, here's what's up. We have to play this rhythm first and honor the deity of Elegua. If Elegua believes that what we're doing is cool, it'll be great. If he doesn't, the tapes will be chewed up and it'll be it really the session won't be good. Okay? So that's what we're gonna do and we will honor him and see what happens. He's the trickster, he's the guardian of the crossroads. Let's see what's up. So Eddie Bobe, he shows he shows Joey the rhythm and then I put the charts in front of the, the players and we run this thing down and it went for 15 minutes and we looked up and like, what just happened? Then we go into the <laughs> we go into the booth, and um, we listen back and we're like, wow, that is absolutely beautiful. Everyone really loved it. And Joey Barron's mm. there, like playing with these balls, like these magic balls and coins and stuff, and he's doing all these magic tricks, and he's listening. <laughs> and we're just like, and Eddie goes, Elagua is okay with it. It seems. Let's continue the session. You know. <laughs> But have a listen to that track, man. It's called 33. Yeah, um, I will. I'm so happy to have even had that and to have Joey Barron there. And yeah, he had like, no kidding. Oh, it's amazing. Amazing. That's, that's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, I've, I have an affinity for Cuban music. I, I 
was fortunate enough early in my career to play in a salsa band in Arizona and it totally changed my feel and my rhythm and so hearing you talk about it really resonates oh great for me yeah man what instrument do you play i i play saxophone oh my primary. fantastic man yeah yeah no yeah. it's 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 deep stuff man and it's i'm so grateful to have had the experience and, and just i feel like cuba is the most beautiful place in the world to me and the most yeah, difficult place you know <laughs> and and it's so you know people you have these right-wing people in in florida saying or anywhere in the state saying, you know, Cuba's so great, you know, why, why are they swimming over here to be over? I'm saying, if if America didn't stranglehold and boycott and, and you know, uh, make it absolutely right. impossible, then imagine what it would have been if, if there wasn't the embargo. Imagine what Cuba would have been when you consider what it is with the embargo, you know? I mean, imagine yeah. there was an incredible, um, fruitful musical, you know, back and forth, but imagine what it could have been so yeah let's just yeah yeah i can't wait to go one someday soon oh, i want to get down you got there to do it you got to do it <laughs> so this i maybe this segues a bit into talking about audiation and and singing this i'm not sure if this is a nice bridge to that but i we i can, make can you explain yeah, can you explain a little bit about what that is? And so, you know, I, I lived in New York for a long time, and I toured around for like twenty years. And I was very fortunate to play with some really great people and learn from them on the bandstand. Um, learn what improvising is, um, and it's you know it is an oral tradition, and that's how we learn on the bandstand. Um, mm-hmm. And then I came back because I wanted my kids here to have um, a better life. They didn't move to New York to be jazz musicians. <laughs> and um, how old were they when you moved? Sorry to um, interrupt. They were, um, uh, I think, seven, no, seven and ten, something like that. Okay, okay, just curious. And um, yeah, just when they were starting to go to get a psychological sense of stuff, I just wanted to just yeah, Australia is a much more peaceful place, but I certainly miss New York. Um, mm-hmm. So what I was saying is, I came back here and then I just started teaching, which is also a really kind of good thing to do, especially because I feel like I, I I've learned some things I can teach, but I needed to sort of make them clear and quantify them for myself. So after three years of teaching, I started to see that for me. I think the most important thing for all students of improvisation is what is called audiation, or what before I knew that word is um, singingness, is what I was calling it. This quality mm-hmm. of connection with a th- with an inner thread, um, and you know, singingness can be described as um, you know, if I sing. Um, Happy birthday to you. Then I can find, if I don't have perfect pitch, I can find that on an instrument and make that real, just like a language, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, the ability to think in sound, you know? But it's also um, a crucial way to connect with your inner music with what's actually happening there's the thing what is actually happening on the bandstand as opposed to 
what you want to happen, what you practiced and you know you can prosthetically dump onto a set of chord changes. You, mm-hmm. you know, this works on this, so I'm just going to put it on there and everyone's going to clap. Um, you know, <laughs> or like, you know, or just dumping data onto some changes as opposed to hearing it, you know. An example would be, you know, you know, you see... You see people do that, and it's almost yeah. like they play the melody, and then they just can't wait to just dump all their stuff on it, you know, <laughs> which gives no credence to the actual song. There will never no- right. be another you. It doesn't. But as Gary Bartz has taught me, you know. the melody a little bit connect with the melody come off the melody what do you hear what's the flow and so this whole audiation thing is like i'm teaching all sorts of things in two universities here but i'm I'm just starting to realize that the most important thing is what do you hear and how do you learn to execute that in the present moment as it aligns with what everyone else is playing what the audience is going on about what the feelings are. And if you sort mm-hmm. of flip the switch to that, I think you can do all the left brain hard work of shredding, transcribing, universal concepts, all that stuff. And then you can also, you know, I don't know what you need to do, but like listen to some crazy music on the right brain side or just do some finger painting or, you know, or like, mm-hmm. you know, take some psilocybin. I don't know what it is. And all the things <laughs> yeah. you've got left and right. But when you play, you're in the middle of these two things, like almost like a Venn diagram. You're in the middle, and that is audiation, a connection with all the Mm. things you've learned, all your creative elements, DNA, I don't know, like so many things. Yeah. And so often, my favorite players seem to be doing that, I suppose. Does that make any sense? It does. I'm curious how you teach that. (laughs) There's there's a lot of things I could go into about it, and I'm actually... um, on my website, I actually have um, a, it's like a two-part talk that I do on it. It's two hours on, on audiation and singingness. And, oh, and you, cool. can, you can check that lesson out. I also have a Patreon where I go into it a lot. Um, and great. There That's are, a great resource. Yeah, I, I would highly rec- recommend people checking it out, obviously. But, I mean, I could talk for hours about the virtue of, patreon for artists in this day and age yeah and it's a yeah. fantastic place where i've just basically archived and quantified and put all of my stories and all my my teachings and everything that i've learned from the masters um and and just sort of tried to quantify it and with that you know to answer your question you know one great one just to starters for starters my son who's playing guitar now um and he's into death metal and he's shredding and he's he's a beautiful, he's got a he's got a he's got a perspex flying v for god's sake but he said to me dad i heard this jazz guy at my school how do i learn to improvise i said okay eli here's what you do play me a note he plays me any note i say play happy birthday off it right that's a hard melody actually it is a very hard melody. right and he kind of okay play me another note play happy birthday of that so the, I reckon one of the great keys for learning to really connect with audiation is to 
play melodies in every key. Play a note and then play Donnelly off it. There you go. That'll that'll kick your ass. Right. And 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 <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And when I teach the students that, um, I say I, you can do it slow because I'm not interested in you reeling off something. I'm, it's not about ego. Do it slow. I'm re- mm. I'm interested in you recognizing intervals. You know what I mean? Just slowly. Yeah. And. You know, this friend of mine who wrote a PhD on um, audiation, his name's Chris Somerville, and it's available online. Just You could just download it for free. It's fascinating. And yeah. he went around to a lot of the schools and universities in Australia, and um, he asked the teachers and the students, but the teachers also, I'm going to play a melody, can you play it back, or can you write it out? Or And what he discovered is that, you know, you've got all these students leaving university, and they can't play Happy Birthday, right? right and in any key and then he said um there was this a virtuoso pianist and he said to her um you know the the first prelude of of Bach's 48 preludes and fugues that's in c right she says yeah he says um could you play a little bit of that for me in d flat and she couldn't play any of it now she's a virtuoso (laughs) who's playing you know um she's playing um you know, Messian, she's playing, you know, the Concord Sonata, all sorts of stuff, right? Yeah. But she can't play in another key, right? Yeah. So there's something desperately wrong, and this is what I, this is what I feel um, audiation singingness is about, that, you know, when you try to work out what, what's going on here, I mean, you listen to Bart's, and I've, I've had lots of conversations with Gary about this, and he says, you know, people are afraid to hear here because of music paper. Right. <laughs> The other one he says, which is a bloody beauty, is it's not your show, it's the music's show. Mm. Things like that. So Yeah. Yeah, I work a lot with beginners and I it's a struggle I have with the school system. Like I there's a middle school here. And it's this balancing act because they gotta do concerts and the you know, what the kids have to read music and I told the 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 director is a good friend of mine and i said you know in my ideal world they wouldn't even see music for like a year like we would yeah. just play like three blind mice or twinkle twinkle little star we would just start playing and that's kind of, i mean suzuki does a lot of that but just getting the ear going for these kids and playing and just playing I'm very interested in play, playing, obviously, the Playful Musicians, the name of my podcast, but just playing around. And for me, it's like you know, music is a language, and we don't learn language the way we learn music in the West. You know, we don't grow up, we don't start as an infant, and someone says, this is a vowel, and this is a... That's exactly what my, my friend who did the PhD, that's what he said about it. It's like... You know, you learn all the all the syntax and all the grammar of French, but if you can't put a sentence with meaning together, then it just doesn't mean anything. You know, and that's the, a perfect um, analogy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I have a good friend who's a she's got her doctorate and she's an amazing pianist, amazing harpsichordist. And she was like, she called me and she's like, "How do I improvise?" <laughs> and I was like, "Well." And I, I was doing similar to what you said. I was like, well, play play just a melody, like play this Brahms thing that you're working on in your right hand. Like just start on another, can you start on another key and start doing that? And she was like, 
head mind blown. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, and it's amazing yeah. this kind of that you know Western classical music is kind of set up where classical musicians um, their art form is you know reciting perfectly what the artist wants the piece to be, and that has its own virtues and it's a, it's a beautiful pursuit, um, but it has fractured any other type of music learning um, mm. in that you don't learn to hear and you don't, you kind of learn to feel, but through a composer, you're learning to feel what they wanted. Um, and you can't, you, it seems that in terms of jazz teaching, it's, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to be said for what you're talking about. Like, let's not even look at any music paper. What do we, what do we feel? What do we hear? And you, Charlie Bernarkis, the great teacher of Boston, the kind of yeah. mystical teacher, he he was on that yeah. too. Like, he was definitely about. I love this story of Charlie Bernarkis and, and Jerry Bergonzi. They were mates growing up, and they used to. This is really hitting the nail on the head. They used to sit in front of a tree <laughs> for like fifteen minutes and meditate on what tone the tree was emanating. And then on the count of three, after 15 minutes of seriously and earnestly doing this, they would mostly sing the same note. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. That reminds me of an anecdote I heard about Miles talking to Coltrane, and he said he went to Coltrane, and he's like, do you know what D sounds like? <laughs> <laughs> and the Coltrane walked away like, maybe I don't know what D said. <laughs> yeah, very cool. I can't wait to check out your um, your videos on that and that that dissertation. That's that sounds right at my alley. Oh, I think you, I um, think you'll love it. I'll just I'll send them to you. Um, and um, yeah, I think I I go into detail. There's a few exercises I get into, and I also I made this. Um, what I called a um, a mandala, which is um, mm -hmm. it's it's two mandalas and like a Venn diagram really. Um, yeah, and yeah. in 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 religious um, icon iconography, you see often a saint is in the middle, like that sort of almond shape between two mand mandalas, and right. that is the mandala. And so I use that as a way to look at left brain and right brain um, possibilities in terms of singingness and audiation. So yeah, I mean, I, I, you, I'll I'll send it to you. You can check it out. That's really cool. Love it. So um, let's talk about Sia. I'm really curious about how you met her, connected up with her, and then you were were or are. No, I was. Music I was. Was her music just, director. Just for a year or, or so. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tell me about, how, how did that start and, and what was that experience like for you? Ah, oh, well, it's fantastic. I, um, I was playing with Gary Bartz, Josh Roseman, Fred Wesley, Groove Collective. Uh, I suppose they were my main gigs and I was touring a lot and um, mm -hmm. not really playing any pop music, um, but... A friend of mine called um, Tim Vanderkyle, 
who is a Perth guitarist living in London, a very good musician and great sort of musical director kind of um, consummate pop, you know, session guy. Um, mm -hmm. He wrote to me and said, um, Sia is doing the Letterman show and would you play piano? It won't take much to do it. And I was like, okay, let's do this. And I, I had met Sia actually in about 1999. I was doing a kind of electronica gig um, in, in Australia, in Sydney. And she came and she was wearing all mm. pink, completely pink. <laughs> I'd never met her. I met her through Sam Dixon, her bass player at the time. And she, she heard me play. And then she said to me, um, hi, I'm Sia. Um, and after not long, she said, one day I'm going to be incredibly famous and you're going to play keyboards for me. That's what she said. <laughs> and then a week later, I was playing at this thing called The Big Day Out here in Australia. I was playing like some free out jazz music. And I look out in the audience and there's Sia digging it. She's out in the audience. I'm like, wow. Um, and then we cut to... You know, I don't know, many years later, Tim Vanderkoll asked me to do um, Letterman. So I did Letterman, and it went really great, and, and we got on really well. And then Tim said, look, he, he sent me this, um, no, he called me up, and he said, look, <laughs> Sia's got this tour coming up, and I'm, I see you on the bandstand, and I see you in the bus, and I reckon you should do it. And it was kind of manipulative in a way. Wow. He's like, I see you in there. <laughs> and I'm like, well... You know, I've got two kids and it's gonna, bread's going to be good. So I did that. And then Tim um, actually left the gig because he started working with Adele. And so we oh. had this, we had um, a tour booked for Australia, the big day out actually again. And um, <laughs> Sia said, well, you're going to be MD. <laughs> and um, yeah, it, it was it was an amazing experience. Um and I learned a great deal from that experience, just like being in Cuba, you know, it, it changed me sure. and I'm so grateful for it because it's actually also informed a lot of the music I make now. Um, and there were some amazing times. I mean, you know, you've got 10,000 people who know every note of a song, you know, you better not make any mistakes, you know, and at first <laughs> I was, um, I could hardly breathe. I just couldn't believe what was going on, but then... I kind of, you know, settled down into it. I remember we played um, Jimmy Kimmel in L.A. It wasn't mm -hmm. live to air, but there was a live audience. And I remember right. they said, and ladies and gentlemen, featuring Sia. And then I'm like, hang on, wait. <laughs> My keyboard's not working, right? It's not making no sound. And I'm just sweating it out. And then I'm like, oh, shit. and then all these tech guys come and then I restart my computer and my kid's face comes up on the computer and I'm like, oh man, this is such a mix of worlds. This is so high pressure. <laughs> Still doesn't work. And then I, I pull the MIDI cable out just by intuition and I pull it out and put it back in, bam, got sound and we did it. And I was like, wow, this is wow. so much pressure. Um, and, you know, it was just, yeah, it was an incredible experience and she is definitely, you know, touched with some magic and... Yeah. yeah, it was amazing. Amazing. Did did you um was there a lot of rehearsal for the what when when was that? When was that tour? 2000 and I played with the I think it was like 2010, 11 and 12 or something like that. 
We used to do okay. just duo gigs, her and I. We'd do some high corporate things. We played one for Cartier, you know, we'd do one for Sony Music. It was pretty full on. Um, wow. And, yeah, and there was, for her show, we would rehearse. I think we did like a week of rehearsal, and she wasn't there for mm -hmm. it at all, just us, just the band members. And then she, Just the band, And then yeah. she came in to start rehearsing. And she hates rehearsing. And she just came and she goes, oh. she says, okay, let's go. And we started playing. We played one song. She said, we're good. Thank you. Let's go. So then we flew to wherever the hell we went to. And she'd do, she'd do funny things like, she'd say, um, you know, she was um, a recovering alcoholic at the time. And she'd say, but mm. you guys all have to have a double tequila before we go on. Otherwise, you're fired. And we're like, ah. Oh. And I'm like, I'm supposed to keep it all together. I'm like, but actually I did it. And I got, kind of was an interesting very um, sort of uh, hallucinating. It was like hallucinating. It was so bizarre. You got all these yeah. people, and um, it was it was it was super fun. Um, she used to she she used to go. I remember we, we did this one show, and people were just going mental. And she comes off stage, she goes, oh, "I just don't want to do an encore." I said, "See ya. You have to do an encore." And she's already on her <laughs> her um uh she's already on her iPad watching her like you know, um, reality TV show. Like, she's basically doesn't want to be there. I said, come on, see ya. So she takes her headphones out. We go back on. She just charms the audience. There's this amazing encore. And then she comes back off, puts her headphones on, and goes onto her, her iPad. And she stays on the iPad in the, in the bus all the way to the hotel. And then when we get wow. to the elevator, she just, she looks up and says, see you guys, and then disappears. And she didn't want to be touring, you know, that's a well known about her now. Yeah. But I remember on this one gig, she had, she had put the, the props were all of these like comfy, you know, macrame things or like, um, you know, um, quilts and stuff. And she sort of made the stage like her lounge room, the comfiest lounge room ever. And not only that, <laughs> she wasn't in terms of, Yes, I have to tour, but I still want to stay home, right? So she's got this comfy lounge room as the, as the tour set. And then she paints her whole face, her body, and, and this big blackboard. She paints herself out so it's like you can't see anything. You can only see her eyes. And she's like, like as if she's not, like she's still doing the concert, but she's painted out like she's a shadow. Wow. And it's almost, to me, it was kind of like, this her unconscious like trying to get her off the tour schedule and into yeah you know just writing pop songs and then at, at one point i remember towards the end of our tenure she said to me you know what um i don't know about you but i'm gonna i'm gonna make millions of dollars writing pop songs so that's what i'm gonna do and and i because at that point she was you know two hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt to her record company and it was this contra contractual oh, obligation tours and stuff so what I one thing I learned is that she definitely said what she was going to do and, and was able to manifest it. Yeah. Do you do any of the do any of the shows stand out for you? Like, was there a particular show that you did or performance that stands out in that three years or? Couple well, of years? that's interesting because you know they were all fun, but they were all pretty much the same. And this is the thing about playing pop music, and I think it's partly why she couldn't be, you know, couldn't. Bothered. bothered doing it um because you write the song you have this spark of the song being written and when you first hear it but then that's all you can do because it's we're playing to tracks and there's certain parts that are all locked in and you can she's a great improviser 
but she's kind of, we're all locked in. No one's really soloing or anything and no one's really connecting with the audience. It's like a whole big, you know, capitalist monster. Production. You know, and it's, it yeah. is fun for a while, but man, I'd rather play the, the jazz standard with Gary Bartz, you know, much more, <laughs> you know, because there's feeling and there's connection. There's, there's um, present moment interaction. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did, did it... I did do some gigs with her, just her and I. There were some pretty amazing things that, you know, that she sang. But it, again, it was still stuck into one, one song form and you can't really leave it and you can't really stretch out. Yeah. You know? Right. Had you played in front of audiences like that before? No, I had not. Well, let me see. Um, I, no, never, never anything, never a pop thing like that. I yeah. mean, I did also was at the time working with Daniel Merriweather, who was quite well known at that time too. So with some sort of largest crowds, but the Sia thing was just beyond. Yeah. 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 Did, uh, I think you said this, but I just, I want to ask, like, did her writing or her creativity influence how you started thinking about your own writing? Yeah, 100%. So, you know, I've got an album coming out on the 18th of February called Precious Energy. And that album, it features Gary Bartz and um, the, 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 the rhythm section from Hiatus Coyote, which is a fantastic sort of... Um, you know, freaky sort of uh, experimental groove funk, you know, thing. Uh, if in case some of your listeners don't know about them, check them out. Hiatus Coyote. Mm -hmm. um, and I did. I've just been on this trajectory uh, of making writing kind of songs, pop songs, writing lyrics, beats. Um, you know, when you when I was traveling with Sia, I started to get connected to all these producers behind the scenes on festivals. People gave me all sorts of samples and, and beats and, and talked about how they did it and I was just really into it and I, I've enjoyed it ever since. Actually I made an album, another album called Global Intimacy, which features Sia on a couple of things and also features the rapper Cool A D, um, features um Genevieve Atadi from Noah. And those mm -hmm. are all pop songs, but they're kind of anti pop. They're all they're all <laughs> framed around this sort of happy saccharine pop. And all the lyrics are very, very dark and political. And on that album, I stole Banksy's um, painting, um, which is called, um, I think it's called, uh, it's the one with the, t the couple and they're, they're hugging, but they've got a phone on each mm -hmm. side. So they're looking at the phone in their embrace. And I took the image and I, um, I wanted to use it for the cover. So I wrote to Banksy on his website and I said, Hi, Banksy. My name is Barney McCall. I'm making an anti-pop album, a political album, and I'd really love to use um, the image, um, your image, for the cover. And he actually wrote back, and he said, "We don't, um, we don't um, license any images, but good luck with your album." And I wrote back to him, <laughs> and I said, "I don't want to license your image. I want to steal it." I said, you have made some beautiful um, political statements by, um, you know, using graffiti. I would like to put some sonic graffiti on your image. Um, and that's what I did. And I didn't ever hear anything back from him. 
But um, <laughs> the cover of my album, still to this day, uh, you know, Global Intimacy is uh, Banksy's image. And, it's, and um, I just love that because, you know, I just <laughs> love the, the, the tension of that. Well, he doesn't give a fuck, but, but I love it. <laughs> Here's one more cut from Precious Energy. This one is called Sunrays. February. What? How long have you been working on that? Um, you know, it started in 2020, and and it's kind of sort of rainbow in the oil slick in the sense of the difficulties of COVID for us all. It kind of is yeah. like sort of sun rays for that in a way. Um, and yeah, I really love the album. It's one of my favorites that I've ever done, and um, it it's coming out on vinyl, and so mm. um, it's got a beautiful cover. Um, painted by Tokyo Aiyamo. Um, he's a Japanese um, artist, and I asked him to paint us all as hybrid animals flying out of the sun. And <laughs> he's got me as a lion. He's got Gary Bartz as a as a as a dragon, sort of with the serpent tail around the the sun. And you know, it's 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 beautiful, man. And I've been I'm, I can't wait to put it out. Um, and so yeah, keep an eye out for it. That sounds awesome. When you when you write, do you is it always at the keyboard or do you get ideas and record them on your phone? Like how what's the process like for you? Oh, there's so many. Um one thing that I that I try to teach, you know, composition students and students learning um is the power of objectivity. So what I like to do is I if I get an idea, maybe it's a little idea on my phone or whatever, I put it into some sort of DAW. I find this to be absolutely crucial, and anyone who wants to write music, please use a DAW as a way to see what mm -hmm. you've actually got. So I'll put, right. like, a, I'll make a mock-up of everything I've done in the last 10 years I've done this, where I make a mock-up, so I play in some crappy bass, some drums, or if I'm playing <laughs> to some real drums or, like, some batar stuff, that's even better. And I kind of make... Yeah a mock-up so I can feel it out. But what I want to do is I want to access um, the different Barneys and I want to use all the different Barneys so that they can all adjudicate and make um, objective decisions about how this song could be made better, 
what the form can be, um, what sounds I might want to do, how long the solo might be, if it needs some other section. And so for the last 10 years, I've had, um, you know, a folder on my laptop and on my phone of the latest stuff I'm working on. I've got one right now. I could, I could play it to you. And what I find is that, you know, if I'm walking the dog, I mean, I'm one Barney. If I'm, you know, if I'm feeling a bit depressed or if I'm feeling, um, you know, rejuvenated after a good, there's all different parts of me. And it's super fun to listen to what you're working on and kind of, I don't know how many times I've been, you know, listening to some stuff that I'm working on trying to make an album and I'll actually stop the car, pull over, write down some notes about what I now hear, or I'll sing a melody that I want to fix. And so I just keep refining all the drafts and then I'll have draft two in there, draft three, and I'll do what I mm -hmm. think. And if it doesn't work, I don't do it. If it does work, then I'll put that in the newest draft. And this is a way that I've found, you know, and I've made 20 albums and I think a lot of it has to do with using DAWs and sort of it, it's it's exciting so the momentum is created by the way the song's unfolding and you can really it sort of almost gives credence to the fact that you want it to be you know? right do you have like a set routine around writing like every you try to write some every day or compose a little bit on a schedule or? uh not really but you know once i've got something going on a bit obsessive um you know, I have other responsibilities that we all do, and, and it is difficult to balance these things. Um, but what's interesting yeah. is that these days, songs have been coming to me that are kind of like jazz compositional. And I remember Ben Monda saying, if a song comes to you and um, it, uh, it'll ask you to do certain things to make it real, and it's, it's tiring, and it's hard to do sometimes. But these <laughs> songs are coming to me, and I'm like, you know what? I just don't want to write like that. I'll put it on my phone, but I'm just not interested in it because I've just made so many albums like that. So I'll, I'll keep it. Maybe one day I'll flesh it out. But, um, yeah. you know, it's it's just as it comes, you know, like I'm always, this is in the studio space here and all sorts of things going on. Like I'm I'm doing all sorts of setting up all sorts of promo for this new album, but I've also made a whole other new album, which I've called Corona of Thorns, which I don't know when I'm going to release that. Release that. <laughs> And it's just, yeah, just piles of stuff going on. And you know why, Steve? Because, you know, this is, this is how, this is how we get through, you know, it's catharsis, it's transmutation, yeah. and I see it as a healing thing and it, it heals me and hopefully maybe other people will get benefits from it, but that's just what it is. You know, that's just what I, I have to do. And, it, and it's, it, it's, there's nothing better than having a, sort of like a new piece that you're developing and then going into the studio and making it and you know when i talked about yeah. objectivity in terms of using all the different barneys um to make sure that the piece is what exactly what i want when i go into a studio with a band i've gone through so many iterations so many sibelius charts that when i go in there i know what's up and so i don't have to change notes or whatever because i've already heard it all and then i can then <laughs> then i have to be free and open to what's happening there may be extreme changes as um you know, right. John Cleese says, as an artist, you know, you have to get into this child space and you have to be free. And if you have a vision, you have to follow through with that vision. But you also have to be open to the fact that that vision's wrong and just completely delete and start again. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Yep. How is it different 
when you're the producer as opposed to when it's your own project like i'm thinking about gian slater for example like is it a similar process where you're like listening to the stuff in the car listening to it with the different barneys and then coming back to it with ideas definitely definitely i think a lot of people do that um definitely but with gian so gian's record which is so beautiful um she gray is ground gray is ground yeah um she came to me with some i have a long um musical relationship with john and um she said you know i want to make this new album i said well i'll do it um but i'd like you to let me produce it and i'd like for us to get together and i'd like you know she's she wrote all the music on that and she's a brilliant brilliant composer um mm. and very sophisticated very knowledgeable and you know blessed and but yeah. i said can i sing some lines to you so you know i'm gonna have some crazy vision as well and can i if you i'll do it if you let me experiment and also the pieces that you've written which have come as you mentioned on your podcast which i've listened to she um you know through simon barker she came up with all these very sophisticated rhythmic ideas that she wanted to turn into song and i said my thing is like I want to put out an album and everyone says, what the hell is this? This is nothing like the one before. <laughs> and if we don't do that, Gian, then I'm not interested because, you know, you've made some amazing albums, but let's make one that people don't, aren't expecting, please, I beg of thee, you know. And <laughs> um, and so I said, what I'd like to do is turn these complex um, rhythmic things you've got going on and make them almost feel like a pop album. That's my, that was our, mm. that was our idea, like, make it feel yeah. make it feel as simple as possible but it's almost you know it's very difficult music um this mixed media yeah. stuff and and she's so 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 um breezy with it it doesn't affect her it's so natural so yeah in terms yeah, of yeah it's effortless oh man so uh, you know producing her thing was just a pleasure because it meant that i could say look i kind of hear this line could you sing it in and with gian when you're in the studio she just first every take is like a first take like she can just She's got so much um, control. And so mm. some of the harmonies that we wrote together um, was just so fun. Or I'd say, can you just stack this up? Or, you know, and then I was like, I'm going to use all these synths. There's not going to be any acoustic feeling, you know. And, um, yeah, so I, I love making that album. And it's it's just a drag because it really should be known um, by so many yeah. more people. Um, oh, Yeah. And this is the world we live yeah, in. Yeah, I I'm I try to tell everybody I know about it. I'm like, that album, and I, I think I said in the podcast too, it hit me the same way like Peter Gabriel's so did. You know, there's just like a few albums in my life that hit me that way. And that album was one of those where I was like, I've, I don't even, I'm speechless. I don't even know what to say about how creative this is and beautiful. It's like, holy shit. Wow. That's a great compliment. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. It's beautiful. Man. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And that, that's, yeah. And your foot, your handiwork in there too. I mean, it's yeah. Something really precious. Thank you. Um, tell me about, I want to ask about Lori Anderson cause she's also one of my, heroes and oh that's great i know I'm glad that you using... met oh <laughs> i i remember i got her album uh mr mr heartbreak mm -hmm. said it 
when I was a teenager, I was like really into Adrian Ballou oh, and, and uh, Laurie Anderson and Peter Gabriel, like all of that stuff. So tell, tell me about Laurie Anderson. Okay, well, uh, she came to Australia. This must have been in, gee, it might have even been the late 80s. I'm not sure when it was, but it was this amazing show that she did. And um, my friend, my friend's girlfriend, my friend and his girlfriend were going to go, um, but my friend couldn't, he had a gig, so he couldn't go. So he said, do you want to go with Helen? I was like, okay, I'd love to. And he said, um, here, take this cookie, right, before you go. <laughs> right? <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Um, and so I took the cookie. It turned out to be a hash cookie, and I was mm -hmm. very, very high. Um, and I'm sitting there on the in the second row, and I'm watching Laurie Anderson, and it's unbelievably good. But I'm also like just my teeth are clenched together because like she's got all these radars and all the subject matter is so layered and um, and yeah. and loaded. <laughs> Her thing is everything is so loaded, man. And I'm sitting there, and at one point. She comes out into the audience and gives about five people a key, like a house key. And I'm like, oh, no, oh, she's going to come over here. She's going to come over here. Anyway, she comes over and gives me a key, right? And I'm like, what the mm -hmm. hell? And um, so that happened, right? And then, like, 15 years later, I'm in New York. I'm on the west side having a like some sort of brunch outside with this amazing piano player, my teacher, Paul Grabowski. And we're sitting out mm -hmm. there, and he can attest to this, and I look, and I see Laurie and Lou Reed walking along, right? And I'm like, hang on a minute. So I yelled out, oh, excuse me, Laurie. She comes over. I said, about 15 years ago, you did the performance piece, and you were handing out keys. And she goes, yes. And I said, well, I was just wondering her about that. She says, well, has it opened anything for you? And I said, oh, well, not really. And she goes, she goes, keep trying. And then she walked away. <laughs> it was a 15-year-long art exhibition that I was involved in. <laughs> I love her. Man. That's hilarious. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Um, wow. Yeah. And Gary Bartz, like, he's... How old is he? Is he 80... 81? 83 or 4, I think, right now. Okay. And still going strong. Oh, amazing. He's so alive. Um, <laughs> so he, yeah. He, and did you, yeah. did you move to New York to play with him? Like, was that the impetus to go to it New York? It was. I did a tour here in Australia with him, and we got on really great. Um, and it was so fun. And then he said, look, you know, George Cables has just left the band. Um, do you want to join the band. I said, well, I am kind of heading to New York. I, I would love nothing more. Uh, and, and um, yeah, and I went and suddenly I was playing with Gary Bartz and how coveted a gig would that be? But we just got on so great and I've been playing with him, gee, since 1997. And um, wow. yeah, he's never really ever said anything except one time when the first recording we did, which was pretty close to the time I moved in 1998 maybe, um, at the Jazz Standard, um, he just said, just relax, man. That's the only thing he's ever said. He's kind of like, if you're in the band, you're in the band. If you're not, you're not. But actually, 
interestingly, in terms of this podcast, I've actually been interviewing Gary for you know the last two years. I have many, many hours of of just talking to Gary because I'm helping him put together his autobiography. So I've learned. Well, that's awesome. And it's just wonderful, man. I feel so um, privileged to and honored to to be able to hear his incredible stories. And so we're looking for someone to write the book. Um, or maybe we'll write it together. I'm not really sure. Um, but I've learned so much through that. But I've probably learned more being um, able to play with him for so long and learn from him. Uh, I can't, you know, it's one of the most important musical um, events of my life. He is the most incredible teacher for me. And I, I just feel so grateful, you know. Um, I've had so many yeah. amazing times. And the strange thing is, or maybe it's not strange because we're all just humans, but like I come from like a small town in, in, in Australia called Murrelbark, which is an Aboriginal word. And mm-hmm. I somehow, you know, listening to, you know, black American music from seven years old, absorbing the phrasing, the feeling as much as possible, loving it, finding solace in it, you know, it's everything you know to me in terms of music and and then i find myself playing with someone as great as gary bartz and we get on like a house on fire it's like he's sort of like my brother and and my friend and my dad and my my mentor all at once and we just yeah we just hit it off and yeah it's amazing man gary gary bartz and i mean he's just so he's such a beautiful player He's such a beautiful spirit, so much joy, so much singingness, so much narration yeah. and stories. And and culturally and politically, you know, very, very important in America, you know? Like, wow. Yeah. Wow. Do you remember your first gig that you played with him? Definitely. I um I was kind of nervous. Is he going to be like this New York cat? And is he going to vibe me or whatever? And I'd learned all his stuff. <laughs> and it was fascinating because when he walked into the rehearsal and we're all, we're all Aussies playing with him, um, he tripped. And the way he recovered showed me that he's a vulnerable person and a kind person. I don't really know how to explain it, but mm. I was like, wow, he's going to be okay. He's just going to, he's going to show love and he's going to meet us where we are. I felt that straight away, mm. and um, you know uh, that was the first time. And then, yeah, I've been playing with him ever since. And you had a a gig at the Village Vanguard with him. Yeah, we played a number of first. a number of weeks there. Um, one time, I remember Kenny Garrett came down every night and played with us, which was an amazing experience. Um, oh man, I bet. Oh, when when was that? Oh, I don't know. I bet you it's still online. I, I can't remember. This is in the two thousands. Maybe two thousand eight, mm-hmm. something like that. We did we did about three yeah. weeks there over the over the time that I was living in New York. And I remember, wow. you know, I'm a quite a romantic and a hippie, you know, and I was kind of like I couldn't believe I was playing in the Village Vanguard. Um, what a dream! And so right. I was getting into you know we we had a pretty slick unit because we'd been playing for quite a while by that stage and we'd been touring a lot. And I remember going well. What would it be like if I earnestly and seriously tried to invoke the spirit of Bud Powell and and Rumi, the poet? This is what this is what was going on in my mind. <laughs> so, what would it be like to do that? And I had this experience where 
I'd literally disappeared and was just watching myself. You know, people talk about this, and it's one of the times that yeah, I did out of body. I had an out of body experience for real. I, wa I was up above watching my hands, and I played this long solo over. I forgot what I think it was. Uh, Walter Davis's, Walter Davis Jr. Uranus. It might have been, or maybe it was, might have been um, Gary's song Sol Solstice, but. It freaked me out actually because it just was pouring out of me. It was almost felt like it wasn't me. And after the um, set, I went back to the band room. And I said, "Gary, man, I'm sorry I played so long on that track." And he said, "As long as it takes, man." <laughs> <laughs> but I called up my friend and mentor Mike Knock after that in Australia from from New York. I said, "Mike, I just had this freaked out experience. I I was I decided I wanted to evoke the spirits of some great masters." And I left my body and I was watching myself play. I'm kind of freaked out. What should I do? He said, man, there's a lot of residue in that, that room, you know, and that's yeah. just, that's just what's up. And, you know, people don't generally talk about it. Um, but, um, that's, that's what's going on. It's, it's just another mystery. Yeah. That's an amazing story. Oh, thank you. And you met Kenny Garrett through. He came in and sat in well, with the group. He's friends with Gary. Obviously, he's a big fan of Gary's, and he sat in. He, he was doing. Yeah. It. He must have been doing some other gig, but he he came in every night and, and sat in. And I remember. Wow. I had um, I had learnt this chord in every key that the piano player John Davis showed me. It's this is the chord. It's actually a fascinating chord. I put the voicing up on Facebook, and I had about three hundred comments on it with all these people coming at it with all these <laughs> angles. And anyway. <laughs> And I was playing that chord under Kenny. And I remember he came up after the set and said, man, you got to show me that voicing. What were you doing there? And I was thinking, wow, this is fascinating in terms of this idea that if you start developing just colors and, and learning them through the keys, then it becomes my own language in a way. You know, like if you, if you mm -hmm. learn weird shapes or things that really resonate with you and they're not bebop licks um, and they're not like lines from someone else, but they're like, a sort of fascinating color um they stand out and give you um you know this sort of individual's sound and and um that's what bird did but his stuff was so powerful right. that everyone falls into the the vertex vortex of of birds unadulterated genius you know and you could spend your whole life yeah. trying to sound like him but he was he was finding these colors that really resonated, and they just happened to be so incredible. So it was quite a, quite a, an interesting thing that I just throw threw that in, and, and Kenny heard it with his ears, you know, like right. he didn't ask about anything else I played. <laughs> and then you did you record with him or with, play with Kenny, him after that? No, no, yeah, no, just just from that that Vanguard. Experience, just from yeah. that, yeah. He's one of my favorite alto players of all of the modern ones. He like, is just incredible. I just watched a YouTube with. I didn't realize he had played with Kenny Kirkland, but there's a. It's him and Kenny Kirk. I'm trying to remember the rest of the band in Europe, and I think it's in Germany. As me, just a killing. Yeah, that's so killing. angular and just <laughs> evil in the best possible way. Yeah. You said that you're listening to a lot of black music growing up. Was there a lot of music in your house then? Well, yeah, because there was a drummer here, quite well known, 
His name is uh, Len Bernard, and he was friends with my parents. So even at seven years old, I've got Pine Top Smith, I've got Muddy Waters, um, uh, a lot of like, you know, Mary Lou Williams, um, Miles Davis, you know, and I'm absorbing the like. There's an album that we had, which actually my brother also became a big fan, and he's also a, a fantastic piano player here, John McCall, and he um, he got some very hip albums. He had um, an album on Metro, Bud Powell album, where he plays Hallucinations, Willow Grove, um, Dance of the Infidels, Celia, um, and he's just on fire. And and I remember he. Someone had, he'd met someone in the city because he's a bit older than me. He was already doing gigs. And some guy, some American guy was like, hey, man, do your head a favor. Listen to Bud. And so he went into a record store. He got, got this, this Bud record and, and, and he played it to me. And I remember um, he played Willow Grove, which is... And then Bud plays this blues solo, and it really messed with me. Like I was just like, "What? I love this. It's so weird, though." And 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 I just want to know. I must know, mm. you know. And it set me off on a whole path to hear Bud. And then, you know, he had this album Tune Up, which is on Prestige, a double album of Miles Davis. And I listened to mm -hmm. that album um, constantly. It created my ability to make music because. I listened to the phrasing and all the... I could sing every note. Right now, I can sing every note. And uh, one thing... Wow. I, in terms of... Just to go back quickly to audiation, for example, mm -hmm. Miles is like... He says... <laughs> it's on that song four, right? And that's E-flat major. He goes... Mm -hmm. And he get, on the E-flat minor, he sticks on that D. <laughs> and I've always thought, wow, but D doesn't work over E-flat minor. But it does because it's more important to follow the momentum of what you feel. Like that's some deep feeling and it transcends yeah. chords. Of course it does. They came after. <laughs> Music came first and all this other quantification stuff came after. Come on. So right. I always cite that as an example of how I started to understand um, singingness and audiation. Yeah. That's beautiful. I love that. Thank you. That's yeah yeah i always get i I would get in i, I would still get in arguments with <laughs> some of my fellow teachers who teach you know it's like chord scale theory like we're gonna start you with chord scale theory and i'm just like oh my god don't do that <laughs> can we just start with like <laughs> can we play some melodies let's just play yeah, some melodies. melodies man <laughs> melodies is where it's at you know the, yeah. well, as Gary says, the melody in, in, in improvised music is the umbilical chord. And if you cut it, then you're lost. But in life, right. you want to cut it as soon as possible. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> very, very profound Not to get into words, any, yeah. not to get into a pseudo Jungian. <laughs> right. So you got this recording coming up in February. You've got this other recording in the that's 
that's uh, for, of COVID. Yes, that's sitting there. What what else is coming up for do you? Are there performances going on in? Oh yeah, Australia, it's starting to or? come back now. So I'm actually playing next Friday. I'm doing a solo piano, two solo pianos. So this fantastic piano player called Mark Fitzgibbon and I are doing a, a concert at this beautiful. It's called Balura House, um, and they have two two Stuart and Sons grand pianos. So we're going to do that. Um, you know, and I play quite regularly with my trio here um, in Melbourne. Um, I'm potentially mm-hmm. going to pop back to New York in June if I can wrangle it. Um, I'd love to um, just reconnect. I miss the States so much, and I miss obviously playing with those great musicians. I spoke to Gary's manager, and she said, well, you know, if we know you're coming, we can hook something up. So maybe... where do you best you live, Steve? I live in Southern Oregon, actually. Oh, okay. I'm right on the border of... California and Oregon yeah, great. in the mountains. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Yeah, so I've got, you know, right. uh, um, I'll, I'll definitely be doing, you know, a rollout for this this album, which I really can't wait to, to, to put out. Um, yeah, so there's mm-hmm. lots of things going on. The album, the yeah, album is called... Produce- sorry, the album is called Pre- Precious ahead. Energy. The album is called Precious Energy. Um, and I've released that song already, and um, it got more attention and streams... Um, than anything I've ever done. I think it has like 70,000 streams, which is a lot. Um, and you, partly maybe because Giles Peterson kind of picked it up and played it a bit. And partly because, you know, it's um, it's written by uh, Leon Leon Thomas, Precious Energy, you know, with um, Pharaoh played one version of it. And Gary, I learned it through playing with Gary, that song. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it speaks about, um, you know, the precious energy of... of um, of nature and, and, and higher things and remembering them and being and, 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 and honoring them, you know. So it's kind of a, mm. it's strangely, it becomes like a kind of, you know, we're looking at, at a different world now with this, this COVID stuff. It, it is all encompassing. It's probably one of the most extreme events of, of humanity's, you know, uh, uh, history. Yeah. Um, and so hopefully. Yeah, I just music, music, uh, music heals and, and, and music fights evil. Yeah, I, I believe that. That's awesome. Are you any pro- producing projects coming up in 2022 or? Um, not, not anything that I, not anything that I, I know of, but who knows, man. Um, I, yeah. I'm actually, I'm just enjoying not really doing very much sideman stuff and just really um, considering what my contribution might be. And uh, as I said, like Patreon has been a fantastic, um, it's been a, a fantastic vehicle to archive all the things that I have done and understand what they are, um, mm-hmm. but also to share um, the things that I've learned through my touring and being in the States, um, to share knowledge is, it feels so, um, it feels like a a dignified exchange, um, as opposed to this whole idea that we, we put all of our ideas up on our social media as soon as we feel them or touch them or or get a sense of them (laughs) so that we can get likes. And this programming by these moguls who, who have made us think that that's what yeah. we want. Like, oh, I got 10,000 likes and got no money because all the money was ad, we're just ad fodder. You know, you are yeah. the product <laughs> kind of stuff. That's what my uh, Global Intimacy album was about, how we've all mm. been hoodwinked. And so 
why I like sure. pr- um, platforms like Patreon means that when I put stuff up on social media, I basically show a little bit and say, if you would like to to learn from me or, or see my ideas or some live streaming concerts or whatever, um, please join up for a very small amount and let's let's do it like this and let let other musicians and artists do that too and re re um rework this this terrible corp capitalist thing that's eating itself into oblivion and may i also say that you know where are we we're in we're in november 2021 talk to me in um november 2023 or two about music nfts and how (laughs) things have changed drastically um and there's an empowerment going on and i i I sense a huge shift with the whole you know the metaverse and 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 and, um you know cryptocurrencies and the blockchain and all this stuff it's just like you you can't keep deceiving people there's nothing they can do it's going to change thank god thank Thank, god thank (laughs) shit's about to get real (laughs) the matrix so yeah so people want to check you out they can check you out on patreon you also have a website yeah barneymccall.com and you know everywhere on the socials and everything yeah what's your do you know your social handles off yeah barney mccall on on facebook barney music on twitter and barney mccall on instagram great and do you you have a anything up on youtube i have extra celestial arts on youtube Okay, awesome. And I'll make sure to link to all that Fantastic. in the show notes, plus everything else we've talked about. Um, Barney, wow. I feel like there's, we barely <laughs> scratched the surface. I feel like there's so much more we could talk about. I'm but sorry, I could chew your ear off, but we'll do another one. <laughs> we will. We will for sure. And um, I really appreciate your time. Um, it's been a, a real pleasure for me to talk to you. Well, you seem very genuine so i appreciate it and um, good luck with your, your cast thanks barney okay see you later steve again just a few more things before you head out the door please visit barney's website barneymccall.com support local art or local artists support independent artists if you're in melbourne you're supporting a local artist uh, buy his music. It's a really amazing album. You know, he's so creative and it's gorgeous, and I know you're just going to love it. So, BarneyMcCall.com, you can learn more about him there as well as purchase his recording. And while you're on the web, check out theplayfulmusician.com. You can hear all the past episodes. We're almost episode 40. I can hardly believe it. <laughs> and we've got, uh, you know, I say this all the time, but we're so fortunate. We're, we've got amazing guests coming up. So theplayfulmusician.com to hear more and, and read more about these musicians. Thanks again for being here. Head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review, tell me what you thought of the show, and we'll see you back here again real soon.